morning. Our reading today is from Acts 16, verses 13 through 26. Luke wrote in Acts 16, 13 through 26, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we were supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after that, she was baptized, and her household as well. She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept as practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Thank you so much, Deb. Every time someone reads, I'm told I shouldn't spend a lot of time commenting. But... (laughs) I love Deb. And uh, if you tell her you miss her chocolate chip cookies, I'm just giving you a pro tip here. She may surprise you one Sunday afternoon and show up with all the fixings and take over your kitchen and make them for you right before your very eyes. Just saying. So thank you very much for reading that and pronouncing Thyatira correctly. You nailed it. Um, well, I, if, if you... Feel like you've been a part of something this morning. I'm with you. I always find that uh, getting around you and being a part of the movement of the Lord amongst God's people, there's just something to this doing this together. That that God has made corporate worship something that not only is it a blessing to Him as we collectively give our praises, but we get so much out of it. And so, um, I apologize if my voice is already going to go because I was able to spend a lot of time out in the entry, and you all are so loud because you're so excited to be here. So. It's your fault. It's your fault. 
Um, listen, our minds uh, are, are often in the Middle East right now. We are uh, all aware of the events that have taken place over the last couple of weeks, and I felt a little bit disconnected from it with, as it relates to you because I've been away on vacation. I want to thank our pastoral staff for for really handling everything so sensitively but timely and leading us as a congregation through keeping our eyes and our hearts on the situations going on in the Middle East. Um, there's not a lot I would add to that, but I just want to take some time before we get into our text to just make a couple of points uh, to help set our focus. Um, you know, obviously we can't unsee the things that we've seen. And um, it's difficult for us to imagine being in the midst of that horror and all that's taking place. But we have, as a nation, had our own recent uh, up, uh, upheavals and, and all those things. And so there's a part of this in which we're bonded to and we, our hearts and our emotions are, are, are connected to it. Faith doesn't often preach through the headlines, and you know this, and a lot of you have commented that's what you find refreshing about being here, is that whatever's going on in this crazy world we live in doesn't dominate the way that we interpret what the scriptures are saying. Um, and I seek to honor that. The leadership of this church is unanimous in wanting to honor that. Um, but there are some times where events are beyond our um, ability to just kind of say, well, I hope you're, you know, uh, figuring that out and finding out your own answers and stuff. Good luck with all of that. Um, the, the reason why we don't preach through the headlines is because our priorities would be shifting all the time. The world would be in control of the things that we care about at that point, and that would just drag us all around and keep moving the target. I don't know if you've noticed, but now there's an opinion hostility out there. If you don't say anything exactly the way somebody else needs to hear it, they just this overexpression of of uh, a vehement uh, reaction and stuff. And so that gets a little exhausting. But more importantly than that, we uphold the gospel of Jesus Christ here. And we believe that all of these events answer to the one true God. So we want to focus on his will and we want to focus on his direction for our life. And it doesn't cause us to be ignorant of all of these things or even concerned over them. But we don't like like uh, Paul would say, we were just in an amazing funeral service yesterday, a memorial service for Lil Bickford. And we started off by saying, as Paul says, we don't mourn like those who have no hope because we know that the future of, of the believer in Christ is heaven. It's the same way. We look at the headlines and we don't mourn like those who have no hope because we know that God's in control and he's bringing everything towards his purposes. There's an enormity to this suffering. We know that Israel is connected to us, even our own religious heritage, if I could put it that way, because of all of God's plan of redemption, beginning with God's people in Israel. We know that uh, it's a part of prophecy to come. The scriptures make it clear that he'll be uh, dealing with them as his people and has a plan to see things through, even through um, the nation of Israel. And then, of course, it matters to us as Americans because we have a political partnership and relationship and all those sorts of things. The scripture tells us and has told us back from the time that God was blessing Abraham and giving him a hope towards the future. He said, I will bless those who bless you in him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. David tells us in Psalm 122 to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. And then also in 132, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He's de desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. 
So clearly God wants us to be concerned about these issues in the Middle East and being gospel uh, believers and God followers. There's a lot that we can see is a bit nuanced in the way this is handled politically and all that sort of stuff. But we can kind of cut through that and see what God is doing. My advice to all of us, my counsel to all of us is, I guess, threefold. The first is that we would walk in spiritual discipline during this time, that we would discipline our minds and our emotions to um, walk through this season wisely. It will affect us as Americans. It will affect us as Christians. It's going to. God's word has said it will. But we can guard our mind and our emotions not to be too dragged in from one uh, political pole or another or the emotional aspect of this. I'm not calling us to ignore these situations, but also calling us not to obsess over the details sometimes. To be cautious not to give in to conspiracy and sensationalism. There's a lot of speculation that happens. There's vague prophecies, prophecies that we can clearly see in Scripture that mention the regions of the things that are happening, and we could think, this is it, this is the end, and we just don't know. It might be setting the stage. I believe it all is setting the stage for what we would classically refer to as the end, but it doesn't mean that it's happening this year, next year, or 10 years from now, or whatever. We just don't know. So those that say they know have a tendency to be overreading and overapplying a lot of things. The wisest that are very well versed with the events of those regions have a tendency to communicate in this could be what's happening. This might be what we're seeing going on. Those are the voices that you want to pay attention more to rather than those that seem like they've got it all figured out. I would encourage you to do your homework from godly reasonable sources. In the notes today, um, I've included a few resources that have encouraged me over the last couple of weeks, ones that I trust. I want to be cautious, though, and I want to tell you that websites that have particular articles can have all kinds of articles. And if you start poking around and finding other ones and you're like, I can't believe Pastor Brent would endorse this, I'm pointing you to specific titles of specific articles. I cannot control the content of all these web pages and how far they go and all that sort of thing. I've just found a few helpful resources. Some of you have sent me some, and I've uh, selected those that I think would be beneficial to all of us. So um, please feel free to look those up. Uh, Secondly, I would call us to remain vigilant beyond the usual media cycle. We're far removed from those things. The TV brings it closer. The internet brings it closer. But in a couple of weeks, who knows? Maybe we're just not going to care about it as much. I would encourage you to be diligent beyond that usual um, uh, expiration of our, of our interests. Stay watchful. And if you remember, if you were uh, in churches or around churches at 9-11, we were, we were in a small church in Boston had probably about 60 or so people there. And um, I just remember it almost was like we doubled our attendance in two weeks after 9 or 11. And rather than thinking, oh, what a great growth strategy. And this is the going to be the, you know, it, it was a sobering time and nobody knew what was going on. And within a couple of months, all of that extra attendance dissipated. I would encourage all of us, the, the Lord has our attention. Don't waste the attention that he's got. Uh, that he's that he's giving you to all of these things. They are meant. We are we are knowing these things as as a motivation that the Lord gives us to uh, clean out our closets, to sharpen our lives spiritually speaking, to be ready for whatever is coming next. Don't waste this sobering moment, and ultimately to trust in the sovereignty of God's plans. 
You've heard us say over and over, you've heard many outlets say, pray, pray, pray. I'm encouraging us as we pray to pray for the rescue of the sufferer. We've seen the horror and the turmoil that's uh, afflicted them. We should be praying for the defeat of terrorism. And we should be praying for the advance of the gospel. What we can see and what we will see is God's miraculous hand of moving through all of this. These uh, kind of world shakeups have a tendency to eventually we see and we hear the stories and the reports of all the way, all the times, all the ways that God's miraculous hand has come through. We need to be praying to see and experience more of that. Let's make this an opportunity where we still believe that God does some amazing, incredible things. That the, the things that we see as negatives are actually positives in the Lord's hands. And this is where we're going in our text. Because God's people see windows of opportunity where others just see walls or partitions of opposition. As Christians, we have a gospel lens. We have a biblical vision that gives us hope for the future, no matter how bleak the circumstances look initially. Theologians say that Christians face three enemies in this life. The first being the world, and that isn't just an us versus them. It's a system. It's, it's a whole mechanism that moves against the purposes and the will of God. And so we have to recognize that there is a constant drumbeat of a system that wants to undo God and defeat his purposes and those sorts of things. James says that if we have a friendship with this world, then we're the enemies of God. So there's definitely an opposition there. The next enemy that we have is us, our own little selves, the ones we wake up to every single day. Our flesh, as Paul would say, the members or these members here, these members of my body are waging war against my mind constantly. And he encourages us to fight against the members so that we yield more to the spirit. And our third enemy is the devil, the mastermind, the orchestrator of all these things, knowing how just how to pull on our um, lusts and in our interests and then to move the machinations of this world to move against the forces of truth and holiness and righteousness. Jesus said that he's the thief that comes to steal, to kill and destroy. So when we're looking at Acts 16 today, what I want us to see is that God is demonstrating the power of the gospel in the destruction of all three of these enemies. We're going to see this demonstration through three unique characters of different backgrounds. We heard about Lydia, and she's an affluent kind of a boutique owner. She's got some influence both in her um, industry, but also in her family, as we're going to see. She is a, a mover and a shaker, but she's actually a seeker of truth. She's, uh, she's uh, joining up with the other Hebrew women to seek God's will because she wants to find who the one true God is. She is going to represent, her story is going to represent this battle that we have against, against um, the world. And then we know that there's a little slave girl that's being dragged around and she's shouting out prophecies and she's possessed by a demon. Of course, representing our battle against uh, Satan and his forces. And then we're going to meet this jailer. This Philippian, this strong and proud civil servant, this ex-military type who's all full of his own pride and his own gusto and he's going to see it done, which will remind us of our battle against our own flesh. So as we have this setting for us in verse 11, we're going to just uh, jump a couple verses before what um, we had Deb read for us. And that's uh, so it, the scripture says here in verse 11 of chapter 16. 
So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. We're going to see it's going to take some days for all of this to play out. What I want us to see first and foremost in our text and from your recollection of the reading that we heard is that the gospel opens doors that the world would prefer just to keep shut. This system that moves against the purposes of God would just as soon keep some of these doors shut. They're inconvenient. They're they're uncomfortable. And a lot of times they're um, destructive to the philosophies and their um, their actions against the Lord. Eh, We're just going to leave that door shut. And the gospel says, no, we're not. We're moving through that. We're kicking that door wide open. This is an extremely unlikely church launch that's happening here. We've been hearing of the account of the churches being birthed, and, and Luke is recording this, so he says this is a really unorthodox way for a movement to happen, but it is, and this is no different. We have them uh, walking around on the Sabbath day looking for a group of Hebrews to connect with. This is the way that they would do things. They would move into the city. They would find the local synagogue, Paul being a rabbi, being a Pharisee, he was, had all the credentials. They knew who he studied under and stuff. So he came in with great authority. The easiest launch point for them to come and start preaching the gospel was in the local synagogue. They didn't have one in Philippi. The rule was, Jewish rule, was that you had to have 10 men in order to establish a synagogue. So there was none. So on the Sabbath day, they said, there's got to be some faithful Jews praying to the Lord. And so they were walking around looking for the place of prayer. And that's when they come across the women who of, who of which Lydia is a part. And Luke just matter of factly says, so we spoke to the women. And we're thinking in our culture today, no, duh. If you're looking for people who are active and following the Lord, you're not kind of singling out, is it male or female or something like that? You're, you're just saying, where is the Lord moving? But for them, it's a big deal. Not so much maybe for Philippi because it's not entrenched in all the Hebrew culture. As we said, they didn't have a synagogue and stuff. But it is a big deal for those that are engaging in this. As I said to you, Paul was um, a, a pharisaical rabbi. And he did everything they did. He was the best at it. So no doubt he woke up in the morning and he prayed their common prayer. I want you to hear this and I want you to rightly be offended by this prayer. This isn't the Lord's instruction, by the way. This is just what their tradition taught them to do. The Hebrew man would wake up and he would say, Lord, thank you that you haven't made me a slave, that you haven't made me a woman, and you haven't made me a Gentile. So for that, I have all the blessings I need. That's basically their outlook. Can you imagine? Well, so this is the Apostle Paul who would probably pray that prayer. If, if they brushed up against a woman in public, they would take those clothes home and burn them. And so Paul is saying, hey, let's look for some faithful people. There's a group of women over there. Let's go talk to them. Something's changed, right? It's been a lot of years since Paul was a rabbi. But if we're not careful, we miss some of the significance. Luke's recording this for a reason, right? He's telling a story, the unlikely launch to all of these things. So it was culturally heated then and strange as it would be today in the sense of the way that we go about arguing these things. 
culture's critique is that religion promotes the quote-unquote patriarchy. Now, I, I've already said one group of things this morning that might get me canceled. I might as well pile on this morning. Pray for me. But please, let me... I, I want to deliver this. I, I hate when people try to have a hot take, you know, if that means where they like they have to have this angle that's so edgy and people go, wow, that was really bold. I'm not trying to do that. I, I think it's better that we take this debate back to where I think the Lord intended it. And there's a lot more that can and will be said about this, especially at our church over the months ahead, perhaps. But for now, let's just set the stage by taking a moment and looking at this text to allow me just a bit of a rabbit trail to highlight what I think is going on here. Christianity is often accused of oppressing women in particular. And yet when we look at what is actually taking place in the narrative, it doesn't quite hold up to the accusations against some of the statements that God's writers have made. In particular, Paul, who is launching this church through the influence of Lydia, he would later go on to have some um, uh, distinctions between the roles of men and women, particularly in the institution of marriage and in the institution of the church. And those are the things that culture today says, see, Paul's a bigot, he's narrow-minded, he's a misogynist, because he said that husbands are the head of the house and men should be the head of the church and that sort of thing. So he must clearly have a thing against women. He did. We know that. It would have been culturally acceptable for him. He would have been a better rabbi for having been so, in in their opinion. But is that the way this story seems to be playing out? Instead, Luke is saying, no, this was a woman who was a seller. She was a merchant. She was a devout worshiper of God. In her limited understanding, she was just chasing truth. And they kind of elevate this statement where they said, and she actually opened her heart to what we were telling her. Instead of saying, like a misogynist would, it's about time. We gave her the time of day. She should have accepted what we were saying if she realized how we were going out of our way to talk to her. They don't have this attitude at all. They were saying this is a beautiful open door to what the gospel is going to do in Philippi, and she's the key to that locked door. See, the problem is, is when we give in to the pressure and the debate of the day, this world system that's moving and trying to go against the purposes of God, we fail to acknowledge that there is a higher purpose to the things that God says. We cheapen the discussion when we see something like when Paul writes about male headship as privilege and and a restriction for other people. He gets to do this, but you don't get to do this. That's where we start losing our footing. Why are we talking about this right now? Because Paul is later going to instruct that somebody like Lydia couldn't necessarily lead the church, although she's the key influencer here. So is it because he's trying to say no to an opportunity? Is he saying yes to something better? As we're going to see, as these guys are going to walk right into the mouth of opposition and persecution and imprisonment, church headship from the time that Jesus spelled out what a shepherd was supposed to look like was meant to be more about taking on the responsibility when facing persecution. Not this thing that we Western churches have made it, Not this thing of comfort and privilege and sort of like CEO mindset. The guy gets to be in charge while the woman doesn't get to be. That wasn't the intention of saying who gets to lead the church at all. 
Jesus says, I am the shepherd. And as the shepherd, I lay at the gate so that the sheep can come in and out through me. And anybody trying to get in to cause you harm has to go through me. Now, I, I say this as a black mark on, on shepherds, quote unquote, and what we've made the pulpit, what we've made the ministry is it does tend to become this thing of privilege and opportunity. But Jesus wanted this role to always be about sacrifice first. So whenever we look at the marriage relationship, we're like, how come the guy gets to be in charge? That wasn't Jesus point. He knows that we all married smarter people than us. He says, charge towards sacrifice lead by laying your life down. And he makes that clear. Paul even makes that clear in Ephesians five when he's saying it. I know this doesn't handle the whole debate. I know that this doesn't help us with all of the arguments that our culture would raise, but I believe that this is the starting point that we should continue that debate through is does God have a better purpose for his instruction other than what we are allowing it? And often influenced by the worldly debate, we cheapen the discussion by only making it about what you and I do and don't get to do. In other words, viewing only barriers creates heartache and frustration. The people that feel like they're winning this debate, do they seem any happier to you? But viewing opportunities creates hope. This is an unlikely church launch. Um, anticipating that I have not yet been canceled, I'm going to continue. Okay, you guys let me know as I get started. If no, we're done with you. Move on. All right. Second aspect of this uh, preferred, uh, the doors that are being preferred shut by the world is that this is an unlikely church family that's being formed here. We said Lydia was of wealth and of means and of influence. Slave girl is more of an outcast. She's a bit of a circus freak at this point because they're just dragging her around and she's saying things that people are like, what is going on here? And then the jailer is this blue-collared, mission-minded, kind of callous on his hands, going to get the job done kind of guy. And yet all three of these, we believe, are the makeup of the first church in Philippi. This is the church that Paul will later say, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I'm so thrilled with the church in Philippi is what he's saying. And it started from this eclectic group. Paul, the accused misogynist and the one who is a bigot, I say tongue-in-cheek, would later write in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the beauty we have as gospel believers, is that we have a deeper meaning to the instruction that we've been given, and there's more hope in it. That was stressful, I needed a drink. Second um, vignette here is that the gospel opens doors that are attempted to be held shut by Satan. He is with all of his might, putting all of his leaning into holding some of these doors closed. And that's what we see happening with the oppression of this poor little girl. As she's going around with the spirit of divination, this is uh, playing into the deceitful schemes of Satan. And this spirit of divination actually had some specific meaning to their culture. It, it, it ties into this word python, you know, the snake called python. And it was in their myth that they would say this snake guarded the temple of Apollo. There's something about eventually Apollo had enough and put an end to the snake and stuff. But they came to refer to this as a demon-possessed person through whom this python spoke. 
I don't want to make too much of this, but isn't it interesting that it's kind of the same way it happened in the garden is that Satan's schemes and his plots were delivered through the power of a snake. And so this girl was carrying this spirit of divination. And the text tells us that it brought her owners much gain. This is a clue for you and me. We get involved in a lot of skirmishes, don't we? We get attacked a lot. Sometimes we're the ones attacking. Not anybody in this room, but it does happen from time to time, so I hear. And, and, and when we see below the attack what the motives might be, then we start to gain our wisdom with the eyes of Christ. That Luke is telling us the reason why these guys freaked out is because they were making some coin off this girl. And they were taking that away. We might think, oh, they're just trying to provoke satanic practices and everything. They were, but I don't think that was their big motivation. Their big motivation was they were trying to make bank. And they wanted her to keep being the cash cow. And so their attack was so over the top. But what it represented is that attack on God's people, attacks on God's plans, are not always what they seem to be. And I think there's some advice for you and me in this. So sometimes we're talking about the the fight from the world on the outside, but we have our skirmishes from within. And just as a rule of thumb, as you feel like you're being attacked, as you're being responded to in a way, oh, where is this coming from? Keep asking that question. Don't move on from that question too soon. Here's what I think the advantage is for those that are walking in the spirit is when we take a step back and say, where's this attack coming from? We start to think, what is going on in this person's life that they felt they had to resort to that? And belittle me or attack me or something. And isn't the better part of the gospel finding what's better for the other person rather than you feeling defended, you feeling protected? We have way too many Christians that are walking around life just getting offended by all the people who are offended by them. We need to be bigger than that and say, their attacks don't hurt me because there's something wrong with them. What is going on there? Uh, It's probably a bit of a stretch to suggest this. But these guys are dragging around this poor, helpless girl, right? Our immediate sense of justice should say she needs to be freed and her oppressors need to be punished and we'd be right. But there's a part of our pity that says, isn't it sad that mankind has now reduced themselves into trafficking and trading others for their own gain and missing the value of an individual soul? You see, the eyes of the gospel start to see the brokenness across the whole sweep of humanity we start to slow down. It's not about whether or not we're offended by things. It's that we're starting to see the brokenness in others. And we're saying, that's why Jesus died. That's why he came. And I get to represent that. I get to carry that into the snake pit even and trust that he has a purpose for me being there. And it's weird. The thing she's saying, she's saying, these are the servants of the most high God, the way of salvation. Another clue to us is just because we hear someone praising God doesn't mean they're coming at it from the right motives. It just made me think of Job's friends. If you've read through the book of Job, you could write some great worship songs over the things that Job's friends were telling him. There's some really good praise, but they were missing the boat entirely, excuse me, because they were getting God all wrong. They could say the right things about him, but they did not acknowledge what he might be up to or what he might be doing. So they missed the boat on who God was. This demon-possessed girl is saying, they're, they're the ones leading to the way of salvation. But Paul, in his wisdom, said, this, this isn't right. We don't need to partner with darkness in order to advance our mission. Something else is going on here. He knew this was a scheme of Satan. Hey, if I pony up to these guys, and these slave owners are saying, hey, they're trying big crowds. I can sell more tickets. 
These guys are pointing to salvation. Come hear them. Oh, pay us at the gate. See what's going on. So when Paul removes that from them by saying to the girl, you're free from this oppression. They are enraged and their vicious attacks come to the forefront. They seize them. They drag them. They eventually tear their garments off. They beat them with rods because they're overreacting because this is what the enemy does to the forces of God. And they mix it with a little bit of truth because they say, well, they're advocating customs that aren't lawful for us to practice. And in Roman citizenship, that's actually true because they were leading them away from that, uh, the, the religion that they accepted and stuff. That part's true. But they said they're disturbing the city. They weren't. They were disturbing these guys' paycheck. So just like Satan, they're going to mix a little bit of truth with a little bit of lies so people can be like, yeah, we're not going to put up with this. So the crowds all join in, and that's often what happens. We need to be seeing that as we're seeing the events of the Middle East, is that the spirit of divination, that this quote-unquote pythony kind of thing, would move through the anger of crowds and just escalate the, the attack. You see, Satan doesn't easily let go of his possessions. Oftentimes when I'm talking to somebody, uh, giving them counsel or just hearing them saying, oh, I've just given this part of my life to the Lord and Satan had so much of this in my life before and now I'm just giving it over to him and I'm trusting God for, I'll say to them, be on the lookout because Satan does not release those fangs easily. He's got them dug right into you and you're saying, I don't want the venom anymore. I don't want that in my life. And Jesus is the rescue to that. He will not let go of that easily. You will be a target of his attack. That's why James tells us to submit ourselves, therefore, to God, to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Submission to Christ is the anti-venom, if you will, to uh, what Satan is injecting. His venom is successfully disabled by the cross of Christ. Last point. The gospel opens doors excuse me, left shut by our human pride. This is where we get introduced again to the Philippian jailer. Because having received his orders in verse 24, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Philippi is a very proud Roman city. Uh, If you ever study the book of Philippians, always keep that in mind that the things that Paul is advocating for, the things that he's instructing them is a lot of humility of the cross, particular when you get to Philippians chapter two, some of the, my, my favorite passages of scripture. And imagine how kind of distasteful that kind of laying your life down and surrendering and submitting sounds to a bunch of ex-military types. And this is the power of the gospel. And there's a stronghold that's happening in this Roman city because they would encourage their um, retired military to um, settle in to Philippi. It was part of their culture to be proud and strong, to having served their nation well. They were receiving tax-free living as a reward for all that they had done. These folks were loyal and committed to Rome. So when the jailer receives his orders, he's like, oh, I'm not just going to put him in prison. I'm going to put him in prison, prison. He drags him all the way to the center, to the darkest areas. That's what Luke's getting at here. The inner prison. He's going to tuck him away. You guys don't have to worry about them ever again. And as you heard from Deb's reading, that isn't the case, is it? So not only tucking them on the inside, but he put them in stocks, which would have created an incredible discomfort on their legs, caused cramps and instability and all these things. They didn't ask him to do that, but he's a faithful, loyal servant of his city. 
He's going to carry out those orders and execute them more dutifully than anyone's ever seen before. You see the, the pride that comes from our flesh and how it opposes the will of God? What he couldn't embrace or what he, what he couldn't brace himself for, I should say, was what the reaction would be. You think, okay, uh, you know, if you're military-minded and you're thinking defeat your enemy and stuff, the last thing you expect is for someone to to take their abuse and to do something different with it. It would be all about retaliation. It would be about fighting back. What does he see them do? He sees them praying and singing. It should be incredible to us on first blush that they're praying and singing in the midst of pain. That's not my first reaction. I don't know about yours. And yet they knew that this was a purpose for the Lord because Paul had counted his life as expendable for the cause of Christ. Remember, I was telling you what he wrote to the Philippians, these proud people. But as their hearts were being broken for Christ, he said to them in verse 17 of chapter two, he says, even I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Later in chapter four, he'd say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, it's kind of interesting here because probably at the time that that was being read in the church as a, as a letter, the jailer and his family are probably hearing this and said, I've seen them. I've seen them rejoice. I've seen them praise the Lord in the midst of all the pain I put them through. When he says he's going to be available to this, when he says he's going to be faithful to praising his God, I put him to the test and he made it. Guys, he's looking around to his church, probably saying, we can do the same thing. Whatever you feel like, whatever bill isn't getting paid, whatever illness is going on in your family, whatever those things are, excuse me, <clears throat> whatever those things are, you can still rejoice. It is a choice to praise the Lord in the midst of that. I've seen him do it. Sacrifice. Not demand, what do we get out of it? But sacrifice is the path to lasting joy in Christ. This jailer is wrecked. He says, I'm trying to make this man suffer and torture him. And I just see peace emanating. They're praying, they're singing. I put him through cruelty and all I'm getting in return is kindness. Because when the whole place freaks out, verse 27, when the, when the jailer woke after the, the thunder shook and the, and the, and the doors opened, he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword as a faithful, loyal, full of pride soldier. He says, the ultimate failure on my part is to lose my prisoners. And I am not going to face my nation with a head held high, begging for their mercy. I know what I deserve. I'm going to follow my sword and end my life now, supposing that they had escaped. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, don't do it. We haven't gone anywhere. Your, your career isn't over. Your pride. None of those things are harmed except for the fact that you have just encountered the overwhelming grace of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what this compassion did to this hardened soldier? These vignettes are challenging for us. They're inspiring for us, but they, they lead us to understand what it is that this gospel of Jesus Christ is that we keep talking about. We see it at play because Jesus was beautiful enough for Lydia, 
a seller of purple goods, these very expensive um, materials and things that people would travel from all over uh, to buy. And yet there was beauty for her to be seen in the, in the love of Jesus Christ far more than anything she could sell. There was power enough for this slave girl who was being not only imprisoned by human beings who were taking advantage of her, but by an actual demon who was inhabiting her being and keeping her trapped. And yet Jesus was humble enough for this jailer to break the strongholds of his pride. So what happens in his life? Let's finish up the text that we're focusing on for this morning. Verse 29. The jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, trembling in fear. That's what, that's what all of this did to him. Fear about how they handled it, fear of, the great, fear of the grace that he was being shown. And he brought him out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, go out and put a few more years in the military. <clears throat> go out and be a better faithful servant of your nation. Don't fail them next time. Do all these extra things to build yourself up. Go be faithful in that. He didn't say that, did he? He said, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You know, the one that empowered us to be completely different in this moment. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who are in the house And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their hands. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This gospel that was enough for all three of these is the thing that brings us our transformation. All of us should see aspects of our own life and growth in these people. And in his response, even as the jailer, because his compassion was on display as he washed Paul's wounds, he was obedient because he said, I need to be baptized. I need to surrender to the way, this life. He was influential because he had led his whole family to Christ. It's interesting here that he had a very personal relationship. It wasn't a private one, though, was it? You know, today's day and age, we have a lot of people that when you say, do you believe in God? We say, they say to us, well, I have a very private faith, very private belief. Don't ask me too many questions about it. Don't ask me to tell a lot of people about it. It's a very private thing. This was a very personal transformation this man went through, but it certainly wasn't private. His whole family knew about it. And eventually the whole world would know about it as it was recorded. And also he was joyful because he rejoiced. He praised the Lord as he saw his uh, spiritual leaders doing just the same thing. You and I face a threefold attack at all times that we need to be vigilant towards. The world's system moves against the purposes of God. Our own flesh trips us up and hangs us up. As Paul says, it's like everything I want to do, I can't seem to do it well. Everything I don't want to do and ignore, that's the thing that keeps coming back and haunting me. And we also, of course, are battling against the forces of God's ultimate enemy, who is Satan. And these battles seem insurmountable. But gospel guidance allows us to see through the windows of opportunity. Paul wasn't done with his uh, opportunity as he made a brilliant stroke of leadership. We won't look at or read. Let me just comment on real quick. 
because he's sitting in that jail and then every, and then he claims, he says, is this how you treat Roman citizens? You just beat them without trial and all these kinds of things. They said, you're a Roman citizen. It's like, I've got the papers right here in my back pocket. He's not saying all this. I'm adding, but he would be carrying a certificate of proof of, of citizenship. He says, but the whole crowd freaked out on us. You didn't even give us a chance to defend ourselves and to say, maybe that's what he's thinking or he's thinking because he's kind of a smart guy. This is going to show badly on them. And they're going to all have to publicly apologize for the way that they've treated Christ followers. Because Paul's moving on. He's leaving Lydia, slave girl, guard, to start a church. He wants them to be left with the best possible advantage for starting and building their ministry. So he says to them, he says, no, is this how you treat Roman citizens? They said, we didn't know. Uh, um, send word down to the, the jail just to let them go. Paul says, no, 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 not good enough. You guys are going to have to come down and make the presentation yourself. We want everyone to see this. Because Paul's finally standing up for his rights. He doesn't want to get kicked in the teeth anymore. He's done being you know, the world's whipping boy. None of those things. He's thinking about them. If, if they come and make a public apology, then all of a sudden they can start living their life for Jesus Christ with a little less heat on them. Because now the city is watching. There's wisdom in <clears throat> the way that we can resist culture's attack. There's power in Christ to resist Satan's attacks and strongholds in our lives. And the humility of Jesus helps us to resist the attack of pride that wells up within us when we make life about us and our accomplishments instead. Jesus is thorough. He is beautiful. He is complete for everything. We just need to resist, uh, yield more of our lives over to him. Let's stand and let's prepare our hearts to lift our voices up in worship. Lord God, your, your power, Lord, it's not just for an ancient text. It's not just for some city that we can read about that existed some 2,000 years ago. You are moving today. Lord, you're moving in our midst. You're moving in our lives. I know that there are people who are seeing you do incredible things, Lord, not just to benefit their circumstances, but you are advancing your hope and your light to others that we care about. But Lord, our care also goes across the world to a group of people who are struggling and suffering, who are fearful and hopeless. We know, Lord, that their only Savior is not in national strength. It is who it's always been, and that's going to be in Jesus. I pray you'd bring a whole region to their knees to see that you're the only one that can bring peace. You're the only one that can bring prosperity. Ultimately, Lord, you bring peace in our souls because you pay for our sin and you set us right with you. So win the war there, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.